Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. How are y'all today? The sun's the sun's coming in and out. It's struggling. Is, is the sun coming out right now? Yes. I'm all oh! It's a chilly day here today. I got it this morning. I asked Alexa, like, what's the forecast? And she says, like, I don't know, a high of 53 or 56 or something and a low tonight of 36. It's not fun. Yeah, spring kind of, spring flew. Spring flew away. It did, but we had a fabulous Saturday afternoon sitting outside of Gloria's. Yeah, we did. It was very nice. 84 degrees. Yeah. It was just beautiful. Had a really good, really, really good place. We yeah. had the good, good, we were seated in a nice place out there on the patio. It was awesome. It was so, very nice. And everybody else in Frisco knew about it <laughs> because it was a pretty busy place. Oh my goodness! They, they uh, yeah, they, they do, do they do pretty they well do there. Oh, Gloria does a business, and we hear from the staff that it is Gloria's very, very favorite store of all of them. And she's got a lot of restaurants, but she comes there a lot. She likes the Frisco store. Gloria she does. does. Yeah. All so, right. Anyway, we hope y'all are having a great day. Getting ready to get back into Hosea. Yes. We're going to start at Hosea chapter 10, verse 1 today. Just telling you. I'll remind you in a second. And Patty will remind will, you too. I will she type will type it, it, in, it in. I will type So, what it else in. is new, Patty? Um, not much, really. What is the ridiculous national day today? Oh, or Thursday. Goodness. Thursday. Well, Thursday is going to be. Uh, I just saw today that they've applied for it and they've they've gotten it. That every third Thursday now in the month of March will be National Suntan Day, like spray on suntan, spray on suntan yeah. at a suntan salon. <laughs> so I just said, oh, what a country! I am so grateful that will never happen on a Sunday morning because it's a, always will be the so third Sunday, uh, third Thursday, <laughs> Thursday. Whoa, yes. whoa. So we're so. just getting ourselves geared up, making sure we have everything done before we take the big road trip to Atlanta. Yeah. And uh, it's supposed to be just a not-so-great weekend also in um, Atlanta. My, my brother's memorial service is going to be inside, so that's nice. But it's going to be a rainy, high-of-50 kind of weekend. Not very nice. So we do not have class next Monday. That's correct. No, I'll have a slide about it. In fact, I could watch. I could do that right now, there's the slide. Wait, coming. No class next Monday, March 20th. Wow, that's like movie magic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really, really, really taking it up a notch, you know. We're, we're just not 100% sure what the weather's going to be like, whether or not we make it back on Sunday. So in order not to have anybody waiting and to give Scott some... I'm in one of those moods today. Oh, can you, did you just hear the bell? I don't know if you, if you have it, you'll hear it in, oh no. <laughs> I got a whole array of he them over so here. so excited Actually, it's a pretty now. short array, but I've got some <laughs> in my magical, you know, yeah, okay, enough silliness. Okay, and so I, I, my one last, this is completely off the, off the script of Bible study. If y'all have seen the movie, everything everywhere all at once and liked it would you let me know months ago when that movie came out it was rated super high i said to scott let's just go ahead let's just pay what it costs and you know buy it and watch it at home and it was Rent, pretty we, we just rented it yes we but rented it was still it. like 14.99 or something like that good hard-earned money 
we can sit through almost anything and we were we have about one quarter of the way in one third and we gave up we just gave up and last <laughs> night it cleaned up and won every single award and and we don't get it we just we don't just get don't. it I was watching the news this morning and little Dana Perino on Fox, she said the same thing. I, I I, fell asleep in the middle and I woke up and realized I didn't want to watch the rest. So I don't know. If somebody got it and really loved it, send me a little email and tell me why and why I should maybe try it again. Okay. <laughs> anyway, that was it. That's it. Okay. I'm going to open us up with prayer. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here today. Even though we're virtual and it's online, we're all still here together. And we come together like this to study your word. And uh, we return to the um, writings of the prophet Hosea. And uh, help us to hear in these ancient writings, ancient, ancient writings. Um, not only a word to the Israelites, but a word to each of us, to all of us together as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Just okay. Out of your Very way good. There. Take another sip of my coffee. My afternoon coffee. I've got my afternoon tea, too. Hmm. One of my oncologists said, Scott, try an afternoon coffee. That may that may be good. So yeah, awesome. Okay, friends. So we are at Hosea ten. And um I think I'm just going to plunge in. We are still in this long section where the focus is on Israel's unfaithfulness. And I use Israel in the sense of the people of God. All of the Israelite family, all of the family of Abraham, which is a little different than the political entity Israel, which is the northern kingdom. Um, uh, and then there's the southern kingdom, Judah. So, and then there's one of the tribes, Ephraim, that is some Hosea uses to, as a way of speaking of, in particular, the northern kingdom. So let's just plunge in. Verse 10, chapter 1. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. So, you know, the pronouns are kind of, they're kind of funny because of the way the prophets, the, these messages the prophets bring. In this case, um, it's a personification of a person, okay? Thus the singular personal pronouns, he and himself. And Israel, remember, was the name given to um, Jacob when God wrestled with him at the river and that becomes the, the name of the people. And then the political entity and the kingdom, the northern kingdom in particular. And is even the name of the country today, the nation state today. So Israel was a spreading vine. Good thing. Vines are meant to spread. That's how they produce fruit. And he brought forth fruit for himself. Israel's been producing fruit and growing. And as his fruit increased, he built more altars. Now, these are not altars to Yahweh. These are altars to the pagan gods and goddesses. As his land prospered, what did he do with the money? What did he do with the riches and all the good stuff that's coming out of, you know, this the blessings that God has given them? Well, he adorned his sacred stones. These, again, are stones associated with pagan worship. 
because that is the the primary problem of of God's people in the Old Testament is their abandonment of God and their embracing of gods of pagan gods and goddesses, okay? So verse 2, their heart is deceitful and now they must bear their guilt. Sin has consequences and it's going to fall back on them. Yahweh will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. God cannot abide these pagan places of worship. Of course not. What's like the second of the Ten Commandments? I am a jealous God. I have no other God before me. Right? God expects these people to be faithful to the one true God, the only God who actually exists. That's the crazy part. There's only one God who actually exists. That's Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God fully revealed in Jesus. That's the only God there is. And yet they're chasing after all these figments of their spiritual imaginations. God can't abide that. Verse 3, then they're going to say, we have no king because we did not revere Yahweh. But even if we had a king, what could he do for us? They make many promises. They take false oaths. They make agreements. Lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a plowed field. It's, it's like chaos. They're like, it's like they want to live like all their neighbors live. No, that's not who they are to be. They're to be a special people, a holy people, living as God taught them to live. You know, remember Jesus said, ah, you don't have to take oaths. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't have to promise that you're going to tell the truth if you always tell the truth. Verse 5, the people who live in Samaria, now, oh, I get to use a map here. Woohoo! Okay. Let me see. Okay, it's coming. Okay. So, Samaria, do you see the city of Samaria kind of in the lower portion of the green? <laughs> the green being the kingdom of Israel. Mm -hmm. The orange being the kingdom of Judah. If you look up from Bethel to Shechem, to Samaria. Yep. Samaria was the capital city. Okay. Would become, ah, it's probably the capital city now. So I'm, um, I'm going to leave the map up for just a second. The people who live in Samaria fear for the calf idol of Beth Avon. Okay, so I'm going to explain this because it's pretty cool, actually. I mean, cool in the sense of, wow, okay. So, Samaria is the capital of the Northern Kingdom. When the Northern Kingdom was created, Jeroboam, whose name is in one of these little boxes here, yes, actually two of them, one up at the top, one up at the bottom, right. he built sanctuaries for two golden calves. One he put in the north, one he put in the south. The one in the south, he put at Bethel. Bethel means, or Bethel, Bethel is what how I pronounce, or is means house of God. But look at the verse. The people who live in Samaria, they fear for the calf idol of Beth Avon. Well, what's Beth Avon mean? House of evil. Mm 
It's Bethel. That's where the golden calf is. But it's no longer the house of God. Now it's the house of evil. Wow. Yeah. That, that's kind of, see, that's kind of a cool little thing, isn't it, to know that right there? The people who live in Samaria, what are they? Who, who, sh they fear <laughs> for this stupid golden calf that is residing in a sanctuary at Beth Aven, better known as Bethel. And what's interesting is I'm teaching 1 Samuel on Tuesdays, and I came across the name Beth Aven again there. So it became this house of evil became a way to refer to this place because it's like they took the house of God and they made it infamous by putting the golden calf there. And it would be associated not with good, but with evil. Terrible thing. Oh, so the people live in Samaria. Let me go back. to me. I can take the map down. The map is down. Why is the map down? It's a little tiny map now right inside your face. <laughs> oh, but now it just got big again. <laughs> yeah, and now it's gone. Now it's gone. Yeah. Okay. Verse 5, the people live in Samaria fear for the calf idol of Beth Aven. They fear what's going to happen to it. Its people will mourn over it, and so will its idolatrous priests, those who had rejoiced over its splendor because it is taken from them into exile. It's talking about what's going to happen to that golden calf um, and... If you know just the weeest bit of the history here, you know what is going to happen to that golden calf. Verse 6, it will be carried to Assyria as tribute for the great king. So when the Assyrians overrun the northern kingdom, what are they going to do when they find gold and a golden calf? And They're going to take it back, melt it down, offer it in tribute to the king. Maybe I guess maybe they'll leave it, you know, as it is, but it's, or maybe they'll melt it down into something else, but it's going to be tribute to the great king of Assyria. Ephraim will be disgraced. Ephraim, one tribe standing for all the tribes of the northern kingdom. Ephraim will be disgraced. Israel will be ashamed of its foreign alliances. Remember earlier when God is talking to the those in the northern kingdom and how they had gone after making alliance with the Assyrians or making alliances with the Egyptians, doing that regular old, you know, nation uh, geopolitical strategy stuff. It's not to be their way. They are to trust God. They are to follow God's teachings. They are to follow God's commands. They are not to be like the people around them like the tribes around them, like the nations around them. And they're going to be disgraced because they're going to, of course they're going to get overrun by Assyria. Assyria is a mighty empire. The northern kingdom is <laughs> a gnat, G-N-A-T. Seven, Samaria's king. This is the king of the northern kingdom. Samaria's king will be destroyed, swept away like a twig on the surface of the waters. Like some tidal wave comes rolling in and there's this little twig bopping up and down on the top of some giant, you know, 50-foot wave. Yeah, that's what it's pretty much going to be like. No wonder they become the lost tribe. 
Verse 8, the high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. These are these pagan altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills fall on us. It's so, it's so, can I talk, use the word reminiscent, just talk of something that comes from the last book in the Bible. In the last book of the Bible, there are several places where the people have ignored God, run away from God, and when things begin to utterly and completely fall apart, they call even for the mountains and hills to fall on them and swallow them up. Because they just don't want to face, you know, the destruction that they have brought on themselves. So here's the same thing from long before. They will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Um, but there's not going to be any hiding place. There's not going to be any place of protection. Verse 9. Since the days of Gibeah. Now, Gibeah is an actual place name. Gibeah is the hometown of Saul, the first king of the United Israel, um, which would be, say, roughly 250 years before Hosea. And Gibeah is also a place um, where one of the horror stories in the book of Judges around the tribe of Benjamin and a prostitute was killed. Um, that all happens in Gibeah. So it's, it becomes associated as with, with bad acts. Since the days of Gibeah, you've sinned Israel, and there you've remained. That's a good that's a good line. There you have remained. They chose the path of sin and there they have remained. It's the Old Testament story. It's the Old Testament story. In the end it's going to be God who has to be their direct rescuer in, in the person of Jesus Christ. Since the days of Gibeah you have sinned. Israel, and there you have remained. Will not war again overtake the evildoers in Gibeah? This is, this is God now. When I please, I will punish them. Nations will be gathered against them to put them in bonds for their double sin, double portion of sin. Ephraim, the northern kingdom, they're a trained heifer that loves to thresh. You know, um, I'm again, I don't know if Mona or somebody has something to add about trained heifers, but let me read on and then I'll explain what, what's happening. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh. Okay, so I, this, this is a heifer cow. First of all, and the threshing is doing the work that cows do. So I was so God says, I will put a yoke on her fair neck. I will drive Ephraim. Judah must plow, and Jacob must break up the ground. So it's verse eleven is not as direct as it could be, but most of the commentators on this see that the trained heifer is not doing the work 
that the heifer is supposed to be doing. They're not being obedient. Thus, even though that's kind of unsaid, thus, God's going to put a yoke on the fair neck of the heifer, on the fair neck of the people. Because Ephraim, Judah, Jacob are going to need to be obedient. They must learn to trust God. And out of that trust flows deep and abiding obedience. And then, then these are a couple of, of pretty well-known, this next verse is pretty well-known. Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. And break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord. It is time to seek Yahweh. Mona says, A heifer is a trained animal used to plow versus an untrained heifer that is yoked and wild. Yeah, so this he this heifer is trained but not doing what trained heifers are supposed to be doing. So if you take it to God's people, then the people are trained. They are instructed. They're not walking in ignorance here. They can't plead ignorance about how God wants them to live. You and I can't plead ignorance about it. Right? I mean, we might think we can plead. We can't plead ignorance. God wants us to love God and love others and all kinds of portions of this big library of books we call the Bible are all devoted to helping us to understand what that means. What is that life like? What is a with God life like? And it was true for the Israelites. It is true for us. It's what the law of Moses is devotes so much time to, is helping them understand in very surprising ways for their time, for their time, what it means to love God and to love others. And the, in this case, in this little heifer metaphor, the heifer is obviously not doing what the heifer should. Judah must plow. Jacob must break up the ground. And they're, and they're not, particularly the northern kingdom. They've been like a wild horse, as Mona typed in here, or a wild, trained heifer. Just is that they're not, and they must, they must. So verse twelve again: Sow righteousness for yourselves. What's righteousness? Righteousness is the doing of right. It's what flows from the doing of right. That's not complicated. Righteousness is the doing of right. And where do we learn what is right? From our own hearts? No. No. Where do we learn it, Patty? <laughs> Preach it. We learn it from Scripture. We learn it from using Jesus as an example, right? Yeah. Yeah. We learn it from Scripture, Jesus, from God, not within ourselves. That Remember, the, if you were to ever, a verse to mark down is the last verse in the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Nope, that's not, that's not it. Because our hearts, our hearts take us in the wrong directions. 
We need to learn from God. And then when we come to Christ, work with the Holy Spirit so that our hearts and our minds are reshaped and renewed and transformed. So our regular response, our habitual response to the world is much more godly, much more in God's way. Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. And that fruit is much, isn't it? Reap the fruit of unfailing love. You want love? If you want to be loved, send a lot of love out. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. And break up your own, your unplowed ground. It is time to seek Yahweh. I love that until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. Now, people get mixed up in this, and New Testament scholars get mixed up in this. Um, and I think N.T. Wright has a, done a good job of trying to pull things apart. We have our righteousness as gods, as creatures, as humans. And God has his righteousness. And they're not the same thing. We're not God. Okay? Um, God, it, God's righteousness isn't like poured into us. Um, we are simply to do what God has taught us is right. That's what our righteousness consists of. We are not the creator or definers of good. That's God. It's God who sets the boundaries of what is right and wrong. We don't do that. Verse 13. You knew there'd be a but here, wouldn't you? A yes. B-U-T. Either a but or a therefore. <laughs> yeah, but in this case, it's a but because he's saying... But you've planted wickedness, and you have reaped evil. Look at this next line, Patty. You have eaten the fruit of deception. Even better in the NRSV, it's you have eaten the fruit of lies. Just kind of ties you right into Adam and Eve, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you know what? When I was working on this, I, I thought to myself, oh, gosh, a really good book title would be the fruit of lies. Just an idea if anybody out there wants to start working on a novel. I don't know what it would be about, but there you go. Granny Smith apples, I'm <laughs> guessing. <laughs> you've planted wickedness. You've reaped evil. You've eaten the fruit of lies because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors. When who should they be depending upon? God. The roar of battle will rise against your people. Your fortresses will be devastated. As Shalman, hmm, who is that? Nobody, they don't agree. Maybe Shalmaneser, um, an Assyrian king, devastated Beth Arbel on the day of battle. The only place in the Bible we ever hear of Beth Arbel. When mothers were dashed to the ground with their children. Doesn't matter that we're not sure who Shalman is or that we don't know where Beth Arbel is. What does Arbel mean? House of what? Do we know what Arbel means? Gosh, I looked it up, Patty, but... I'll look it up. It's escaping me. Okay. Okay, good luck with that. So, because <laughs> there's a very obscure reference. 
what's it about? It's about the devastation that awaits them. It's like when Jesus in the last, he's, you know, in during what we call Holy Week between his, between Palm Sunday and his crucifixion, when he takes his um, disciples and sits on Mount Olive, on the Mount of Olives and looks down on the temple and he basically weeps over it and tells them what's coming and what a terrible thing it's going to be and it's not going to be thing people are going to want to live through. It's not a time anybody's going to want to be pregnant. You it know, says that Beth Arbel yeah. is the house of God's court. The house of God's court. Cool. But we don't really, we don't really know or where it is. We're not even. the house of God's ambush. That's another. That's movie. the one I heard. Okay. That's the one I came across house somewhere. The house of God's ambush. ambush. I don't only know. That one time in yeah. the Bible. Yeah. You know, it just reminds you again, if we ever need reminding, that these writings come to us from so very long ago, in a language none of us speak. Right. And it's just this, 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 you know, you what's verse 14 about? You're relying on your own judgment. You're relying on your own strength. You're relying on your own warriors, not on God. And it's going to be cataclysmic. And you know what? It is going to be cataclysmic for the northern kingdom. And it will be equally cataclysmic for the kingdom of Judah about 150 years later. Verse 15, so it will happen to you, Bethel. And here, notice it's not Beth Aven now, house of evil. Now it's back to house of God with maybe a tear shed. So it will happen to you, Bethel, Bethel, because your wickedness is great. When that day dawns, the king of Israel will be completely destroyed. The tidal wave is coming, and they will be swept away. They will be swept away. So that's chapter 10. Remember, chapters 10, 9, 8, 7 have all been focused very much on Israel's faithlessness, their rebellion, um, here and there you find verses now and then where God is weeping. You can, I can almost hear God weeping over this and calling his people to righteousness. Um, but but they're, they're four very stark chapters. So before we go on, go on, you have anything you want to add, Patty? Anybody out there? No. Um, Woohoo. Okay. I want to take another swallow of my coffee. I never straighten out the camera. It looks like I'm sitting. <laughs> sitting off to the side? Yeah, just oh, falling off are. the screen. There yeah. I am. <laughs> oh, if I had a competent um, cameraman. Okay, so now we finally get to Hosea 11. Hosea 11 has some of the most wonderful passages in the Bible. And I will, we, I, I will point them out. If you're a person who marks your Bible or puts post-it tags or whatever, um, uh, Hosea 11 is a good chapter to know, just like Hosea 2 is. Hosea 2 is a really good chapter to know and to come back to. Okay? 
So, this is God. And, and we're going to switch metaphors a little bit. This is now God the parent. And Israel the child. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, now if that sounds familiar, it should. So turn to the um, Gospel of Matthew in the second chapter. I'm not sure the verse, so I'm just going to 2 1. Um, Go to Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. In Matthew's story of Jesus' birth, there are many distinguishing characteristics that makes it different than Luke's story, which is the one we read on Christmas Eve and the one that people know a little better. Matthew's story is very much focused on Joseph, a righteous Jew, it's focused on Joseph. It's not even focused very much on the birth of the child. It's focused upon Joseph, and it's focused upon how this story of the birth is the fulfillment of a number of Old Testament prophecies or signposts, okay? And um, that verse from Hosea that we just read is one of them. There's five of them in the birth story of that Matthew has. So look at chapter 2 of Matthew, verse 13, and we'll just read into it. And so this is after the innocent of the, the massacre of the innocents. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. This is their flight to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until after the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, you and I now know, the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. That's it. And then we have... Yes, I'm sorry, I got mixed up earlier. Then we have the Massacre of the Innocents. So, but of course, Jesus coming out of Egypt when, is one thing. He goes to Egypt, he and Mary and Joseph go to Egypt, and later they return home. Um, but there's another story of coming out of Egypt, which is, of course, the story of the Exodus, right? So the people to whom this was written and spoken hundreds of years before Jesus, here's how they would hear it. When Israel was, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, out of slavery to Pharaoh, out of bondage, I called my son. When Israel was a child, I loved him. I just love that line. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Verse 2, but the more they were called, the more they went away from me. 
They sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they didn't realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness. You know, uh, uh, I led them. I, I led cords of human kindness. Uh, you might lead a dog with a rope leash. These are cords of human kindness that God is leading his people. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. And of course, we could go back and look at the story after the Exodus, the people whine and complain a lot, but God feeds them. That's the manna story. God gives them water. That's the water coming from the rock story. God protects them from their enemies. Um, that's the Amalekite story. God is their provider. God is their protector. God is their parent. God is their father. God is their mother. It's... I think when you come to verses like these at the beginning of Hosea 11, it should forever, forever dissuade you that there's anything impersonal about God. For many people in our world, the image of God that they have in their heads is very impersonal. That's Plato. That's Aristotle. That's some of the Eastern religions who hardly even have a God, but it's impersonal. It isn't like a God who is so involved and so loving and so caring that you could possibly use these metaphors to talk about God and these <laughs> dusty people of the Mideast. It's, it's, if, if, if you read these right, it prepares you for something like the Incarnation. I think it, it you would never you would never get to the incarnation on the basis of these verses but if you know that God became incarnate then these verses begin to flash like like little lights this is the depth of God's love this is the depth of God's feeling this is the depth of how God sees and cares for and loves and protects his people. I taught them to walk. I took them by the arms. They didn't even realize that I was the one doing it. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Bent down to feed them. This is the creator of the cosmos that was speaking here in this portion of Hosea. You see why Hosea 11 is so, so wonderful and why it's one that you need to earmark, bookmark, 
post-it mark or whatever and come back to. And people who say, the only God I can see in the Old Testament is a God of terror and wrath, don't read it very well. They don't read it well. And they need better guides, I guess. Because, of course, chapters, what were they, 7, 8, 9, 10? Yeah, they can get overwhelming, but the people's sin is overwhelming. But look at who God is. Look at who God is. Hosea 2, Hosea 11. Any thoughts from anybody? It's just, gosh, I could, I could just spend some time just kind of wallowing in those four verses. Will they, and then, now you know there's great deep, look at the next verse. This is deep sadness now. Will they not return to Egypt? Will not Assyria rule over them? Because they refuse to repent. What does repent mean? To turn yourself around and head toward God. That's what, that's what God means here. That's what repentance is here. To turn away from Baal and turn away from Asherah and turn away from Ashtaroth and all the other pagan gods and goddesses who entice you and make a beeline for Yahweh. But they refuse to repent. They refuse to do the U-turn. So where are they going to end up? They're going to end up in Egypt. They're going to end up in Assyria. They're going to end up who knows where. Egypt to the south, Assyria to the north. A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. Oh, their mighty plans. My, oh my, don't they have great plans? My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. You can call God any wonderful thing that you want, but if you don't mean it, and if you don't live it, it's probably better not to even utter the words. Don't utter words that are lies. Don't utter words that you don't mean, that are empty. These people have demonstrated their faithlessness. They have and they are demonstrating their faithlessness. So the fact that they might utter words about a God most high, you know, it falls on deaf ears. And then God, you can hear God wrestling in God's very being. Now, most of you probably know there's a fancy word that people will talk, will use to talk about this kind of stuff sometime. They'll call it anthropomorphic. Okay, like we are creating a God who sort of looks like us and has feelings like us and all the rest of it. And they end up throwing a lot of, out a lot of Greek words that are coming out of Plato and other stuff about how God absolutely has to be. And I think that is completely misguided. We have these writings because God wants to reveal to us who God really is and the nature of God. Um, 
the same way any other person might reveal themselves to you. A neighbor who moves in next door might want to get to know you, and if they're smart, they're going to need to know that they need to reveal themselves to you if there's going to be a growing, trusting relationship between you and your neighbor, and you'll have to reveal yourself to them. This is God revealing himself to these people, and I don't understand why so many people want to rip this stuff out and not not let it be what it is, which are some of the most beautiful descriptions of who God really is, because it's going to come in its ultimate to its ultimate fruition in what? The birth of a little tiny slimy baby to a girl in Galilee who indeed is God. This God, there is only one God. You know? So so don't throw away these passages. Don't just, don't think, oh, these, this is just anthropomorphic. This is, we're making God into something like we, no, it's not it. These are hints about who God really is. Because he says, look at verse seven. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? These are two more cities that were destroyed when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. That's, that's what they are. God says, oh, my heart has changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, and it is a righteous anger. These people are not innocent. They're not innocents. They're not innocent in their faithlessness toward God. They're not innocent in the ways that they live with each other. Um, think of, I don't know, let's say 130 years hence, when Jeremiah... Um, the northern kingdom is gone, um, and Jeremiah storms into the temple, places himself at the gates of the temple, and says to the people, you cannot come here. And just keep saying, this is the temple of God, this is the temple of God, this is the temple of God, and ignore the widows and the orphans, and ignore the need for justice and mercy and all the rest of it. They are, these people are, these, these are not innocents. They're not innocents. They have chosen a path away from God. Despite that, he loves them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart has changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. It's just beautiful. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man. I am God. Boy, that is a verse we need to remember. 
for I am God and not a man. I am the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow Yahweh. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. <laughs> they will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares Yahweh. It is it is a promise of a return to Zion, a return to Jerusalem, a return to the land that God promised Abraham long before. Has Had that return happened before at the time of Jesus? No. When will it happen? When Jesus returns. As Peter writes, you know, a thousand years for us is like a day for the Lord. But it's this promise of restoration, this promise of renewal. It's like, what is it like? It's like, it's like Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones. It's cool image, cool song. <laughs> right? The bones connected to the bone. Right? But what is it in, is it image, what's it what is it an image of? The vision of the dry bones in Ezekiel, which is, again, 150 years after this, well, after Hosea. It is an image of the restoration of God's community, the restoration of the people of God. That's what it is. Because he looks out and it's just a big valley of dry, scattered bones. And then he sees them being knit back together and coming back. Go back and, and read, uh, read Isaiah 40 again. Um, read what Jesus reads in Luke 4 when he rises to, to speak in, in, in Nazareth. These are the promises of God to to renew and restore despite the people's sinfulness. It isn't like, oh my gosh, it's all going to be wonderful because they got their act together. That's not the story of Jesus. <laughs> the story of Jesus is, well, they're not getting their act together. They're never going to get their act together. So God in Jesus will do and be for Israel what they won't do and be for themselves. That's the story. That's the rescue. God is rescuing a sinful people through Jesus, not a sinless people. God is rescuing a faithless people in, through Jesus, not a faithful people. That's why people have to remember, even still, you don't have to be faithful and righteous to, to let God rescue you. To accept God's grace and to accept accept the salvation that God wants to wants for you, or all of us would still be waiting. Yes, Patty. I was just going to say, Lynn had uh, said there. You you kind of got on a roll, but she was, uh, of course, agreeing with what you're saying. So we're not wrong in seeing, you know, God's sadness and disappointment. 
and his people. Did do you think God created the humans? Go back to Genesis one and two, where we know that God would come and walk with them in the evening and stuff. Did God do all that so we could end up like this? No, I don't think not. so. I remember I'll always remember one time when Patty and I were teaching young singles class, and I said something about how did it actually happen? A young man in the class said said, "Well, obviously, this is pretty much a quote. Obviously, God doesn't have emotions." And I stopped him, and I said, I don't think that's right. Plato would agree with that. But that's not right. What do we see here? Lynn gets it right. We, we see a God who's sad and disappointed with where his children have come. Right? Yes. And... God knows that, the, <laughs> you know, if things were just carried out in a purely just way, the hammer would fall on them. But God is a merciful God. And so God is going to figure out a way for these, for faithless humanity to be reconciled to God. I will settle them in there. They'll come from the Egypt, they'll come from the West, they'll come from Assyria, you stick in the place name. They'll come from all over. This is like Micah. Micah, chapter 4, kind of the same thing. Okay, except Micah's just a little bit later and Micah's a prophet at the south, but it's the same thing. They're going to come, the nations will come streaming to Mount Zion. Not only will God's people return to God, but the nations will return. Other peoples will return to God. Because the promise made to Abraham is that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Abraham's family is merely the agents to make that happen. So, yeah. So, I, I look at verse 9. Oh, I will not carry out my fierce anger. It's a righteous anger. Nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man. The whole, and, and what is the nature of this God? What is the nature? He says, for I am God and not a man. And what is the what is the nature of this God? See, God had already told them and showed them what God's true nature is. So let's do that. Turn to Exodus 34. This is a good place to know. Exodus chapter 34. You know, one of the um, <clears throat> one of the visuals that yes. I, I mean, I will never forget of seeing God with emotion. It's in the very unsettling movie, Passion of the Christ, where when Jesus is taking his last breath, the one teardrop comes from heaven and splashes down on the ground by Jesus's feet. Yeah, it's a powerful it's image like, because wow, that that's why. If you, I think the Bible, in the Bible, God introduces himself to us as, as a God of compassion, right? Yes. As a God who can weep. So look at Exodus 34, verse 4. And I'll even, do the, I'll even deal with the hard part here. 34, verse 4. 
If everybody's with me, Exodus 34, verse 4. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets. Remember, he broke the first one, slammed them on the ground out of anger, and went out Mount Sinai early in the morning as Yahweh had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then Yahweh came down in the cloud. This is the cloud is the manifestation of God's presence. Okay, God does not have a body. This is the manifestation of God's presence. And stood there with Moses, and God proclaimed his name, Yahweh, the name revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. Okay? And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, and here is God's self-description. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. This is the weighing of justice and mercy. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punished the children and their children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation. Now that, for many of us, including me, if this were really the right way to think about it, that, that you know, grandchildren are getting punished for the sin of their parents, that would be troubling. But it's not really what's happening here in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, the sins of the parents are visited upon the children, and the sins of the children are visited upon the grandchildren. It isn't, it isn't as if God is sitting there waiting to smite grandchildren for what the grandparents do. It is acknowledging this deep truth that the lives we lead can swirl around and suck families and generations into cycles of sin, abuse, violence. Just think of the story of David. David, ra David rapes Bathsheba, murders her husband, and then David's own son rapes David's daughter. And another of David's son kills that son. The violence David brought into that household in his sin lived beyond, beyond David. That's the point. I think it's a truism about life. Not meaning that everybody has to be trapped in it, but it's a truism about life, that we live in cycles of violence. And we, Patty and I were at dinner the other day and we were talking about, I'm not sure what, um, I guess it was, we got talking about whew, bias or something like that. Racial biases, because we were watching kids of many different colors playing around outside the oh, restaurant yes. under Wonderful the horse. it was. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, not unexpected. But, and I, so I brought up to Patty that in the musical, Rogers and Hammerstein musical, South Pacific, there's one song that goes, you've got to be taught, carefully taught, year after year, to hate and fear. Right? Because in the play, this, there's this young Navy lieutenant, obviously white, who falls in love with one of the Balinese girls. 
and it's it's uh, they're breaking the bonds of what is acceptable and and he's right we have to be taught and we are taught and we learn it from society we learn it from our parents um, our family others so yeah but the Lord Yahweh Yahweh the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to the thousands forgiving wickedness rebellion and sin that is the God we see on display in Hosea 11 is it not Am I crazy? No, you're not crazy. I'm not crazy. Okay. Famous line. If it, again, if you mark your Bible or you put post-it flags in it, I, for verse 9, for I am God and not a man. We don't, don't make the mistake of turning God into a better version of ourselves. That's what a lot of people do when they, when they are, when they feel like they want to understand something about God or they're going to why God does this. We ask the why question, I think, too much, but um, they'll, they'll they'll tend to do it by making imagining that God is a better version of us. Oh no no no. There's us, and then there's God. And God says, for I am God. I'm not a man. God is not a creature. Okay? So, Hosea 11, verse 12. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, Israel with deceit, and Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One, capital H, capital O. Ephraim feeds on the wind. He pursues the east wind all day and multiplies lies and violence. He makes a treaty with Assyria and sends all of oil to Egypt. Sure, that's the way of geopolitics. Yahweh has a charge to bring against Judah. That's the southern kingdom. And he will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he grasped his mother's, his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. That's where he gets his name from. Israel, Jacob is named Israel by God because it, he struggled with God, and Israel means struggles with God. Israel. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. Yahweh, God Almighty, Yahweh is his name, but you must. It's just like, it's just, by now it's just this plea, right? You must return to your God. And look what that means. What does it mean to return to God? Does it mean to get all the altars cleared up? No. To figure out how to, you know, do a little better job of sacrificing this animal or that ant. Nah, it's not what God wants. Micah, Micah 6. You must return to your God. Maintain love and justice. 
and wait for your God always. We live in a time of incredible busyness and impatience. We want everything so quickly and we're not willing so often to wait on God. We want to see everything in the shortest possible time frame and it blinds us to see how God so often works in this world which is on longer time frames. A thousand years for us is like a day for the Lord. And we know the busyness, it can be almost like a sickness, right? We get, we can get addicted to it. Um, you know, there was a song during the Depression, bewailing the introduction of paper coffee cups. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Paper coffee cups is kind of the centerpiece of the song from way back when, because it was the world was speeding up and the writer of the song was making fun of it the world was speeding up there's a twilight zone episode where um there's like hey some kind of ad advertising executive and he lives a life that's filled with stress and time deadlines and all this stuff and he would ride the train to get home every evening and one time, he's riding along, and the conductor goes up and down and says, Willoughby, Willoughby, Connecticut, right? And so the guy gets off the train, and he has stepped into another time. It's like a time in his mind, I guess it's in his mind, time a hundred years ago, when things were slow and calm, without the same levels of stress. I know they had their own stress levels. I'm, I'm enough of a student of history to understand that. But I do get the point. I get the point. And um, verse 6, you must return to your God. Maintain love and justice and wait for your God always. <laughs> the merchant uses dishonest scales and loves to defraud. Ephraim boasts, I'm very rich. I've become wealthy. With all my wealth, they won't find me. They will not find in me any iniquity or sin. Huh. You wonder, like, really? I guess that seems almost like a crazy statement. But yeah, with all my wealth, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. It's an empty boast. God says, I have been Yahweh your God ever since you came out of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again, as in the days of your appointed festivals. That's speaking really of the festival of booths, which comes in the fall, tabernacles. I spoke to the prophets. I gave them many visions and told parables through them. Is Gilead wicked? Its people are worthless. Gilead's on the eastern side of the um, Jordan River, and about two and a half tribes settled there. Do they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal? Their altars will be like piles of stone on a plowed field. This, again, is more of the pagan stuff. 
Jacob fled to the country of Aram. Israel served to get a wife, and to pay for her, he tended sheep. Jacob, okay, let me read this. Jacob fled to the country of Aram. That's up in the north. That's where he goes to find a wife. Remember back in the book. It's really helpful to know the book of Genesis. <laughs> Jacob fled to the country of Aram, up in the north. Jacob served to get a wife. He served Laban. Remember, get, Israel is yes. Jacob's other name. He to served get Laban. Ra- to get Rachel. Wow. Which, which, which wife did he get first? He got the one with the very um, pretty eyes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a great personality. Yes. Is, Israel slash Jacob served to get a wife, and to pay for her, he tended sheep. Yes. That's the story in Genesis about Jacob. Yahweh used a prophet to bring Israel up from Egypt. By a prophet, he cared for Israel. That's Moses. But Ephraim has aroused God's bitter anger. His Lord will leave on him the guilt of his bloodshed and will repay him for his contempt. So, you know, it's almost like the, the Hosea 11 is like this oasis <laughs> in the middle of, of all of these very fair, they're not unjust accusations. They're colorfully written, but they're kind of like what? What are they like? They're like a, kind of like a proverbial two by four up against the head of God's people trying to wake them up, trying to help them see that their faithlessness is running them off a cliff, running them into a wall. And they're going to be overwhelmed and destroyed by it. Their their sins are going to be turned back on their own heads. And then you have Hosea 11 in which you see this very personal God who is wrestling with justice and mercy and mercy and justice. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I give you up? I know what you deserve, but how can I give you up? And maybe out of that even comes this this, this recognition that God's going to have to do for them, for us, what they and we won't do for ourselves. It's the way out of the trap. Because the trap is God made a treaty, a covenant at Mount Sinai with people who can't keep, won't keep their end of the covenant. I won't say they couldn't. I'm just going to say they don't. They won't. We could argue theologically about whether they could or not, but they don't. And the only way out of the trap for God, who made a promise, in a way that God can be the great promise keeper as well as the great promise maker, is to indeed become a faithful remnant of one in Israel. And that one's name is Jesus. So, that's it for this week. Now, you you should remember that on next Monday we will not have we will not have class. Because Patty and I will be driving back from Atlanta. 
Yes. Hot Atlanta. Yes. Clean. It will not be hot though. Well, it's not going to be hot. No, it's going to be it's going to be chilly Atlanta. Yes. 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 So. Um, oops. Where? Are, oh, there we are. Okay. So yes, I'm 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 grateful that my family is finally able to come together. It's it's been it's been a couple years actually. People are coming I'm, down, flying down both coasts: yep. California, New York, Florida, Atlanta, Texas. So, um, you know, sometimes these these days, especially if your family's spread out all the all over the place, you may be like my family in that um, it's basically a funeral, a memorial, or a wedding that we see each other. Yeah, Otherwise that's it's how it is. It's it's not too often. So um, I am I am looking forward to seeing sure, most of, of my family there. So anyway, um, and my brother who was a Catholic growing up and had not been to church for many years in the final few weeks of his life he sought out a Catholic priest and did his last confession and and he felt that he was totally in the right place with God so that always made this sister very happy so let's just close with prayer Heavenly Father we thank you for this day and for this time Lord to to gather together with um, in many ways like-minded people and to study your your word Lord we um, appreciate Scott's teaching, and we very much appreciate, Lord, that we're able to still do this. Um, COVID's come and gone, and we're all still able to meet online like this. Um, Lord, we pray that you would hold this group close together. Um, some we'll see tomorrow in our Tuesday class, but many we may not see for two weeks. And we pray you'd keep each one of us healthy, Lord, and safe and Lord, as always, we pray for your wisdom and your discernment in our lives to help us make good choices, good decisions, Lord, every day about all kinds of things, Lord. We pray that you would bring us all back together safely on the 27th. It is in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Adios, everybody. We're going to sign off here. Bye-bye. <laughs>